Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson, and on behalf of Dr. Ashley Best and the rest of the Bench Talk team, we want to thank you for tuning in today. This show is about bringing science to the people. We want the show to be a clearinghouse for the research that is important to all of us. So we've spent this week scouring the library stacks for research publications that are just too interesting to be ignored. Let's get started. You might not know this, but next week is the kickoff for the first time ever pledge drive for Forward Radio WFMP 106.5. Forward Radio is a grassroots, community-based FM radio station that is dedicated to serving the entire network of community partners that is fighting for peace and social justice. Our radio transmitter is in downtown Louisville, Kentucky, and even though we are a low-power station, We have the potential of reaching 300,000 people directly. In addition, our radio station is live-streamed from our website. Just go to forwardradio.org. Plus, many of our shows are provided as podcasts on SoundCloud, which means that people from around the world can listen in. Unlike other radio stations, and I won't say who, we do not accept corporate sponsorship. We are totally dependent on volunteers and the kindness of generous donors like you, I hope. We need to raise $10,000 during this campaign to stay on the air for another year. I know that sounds like a lot of money, but if everyone pitched in just a little bit, we could meet that goal. So, set your radio dial now and clean off those earbuds. Tune in to Ford Radio during our inaugural pledge drive starting on Sunday, October 22nd. I think you will hear things that just aren't broadcast other times of the year. It'll be fun. Even your Bench Talk team is planning a special episode next week and hopefully the week after, too. We'll try to make science even more entertaining than it is. So, start saving your spare change now. That way you can join the rest of the progressive, socially aware folks here in Louisville and beyond who are committed to building a media that really matters. Our slogan for the pledge campaign this year is WFMP, the cure for the common radio. Hey, I'd like to update a story that Bench Talk covered this summer. It's a story that has to do with how the Trump administration is not tapping into the expertise of science panels like other presidents have done in the past. Now, this episode was first broadcast on August 20, 2018. If you want to access that, listen to it, go to forwardradio.org. And under the tab for programs, click on Bench Talk, the weekend science. On that page, there'll be a little icon of some headphones. Click on that and then look for the podcast from August 20th. We also have a Facebook page. Just go to Facebook and type in Bench Talk, the weekend science, and you can find our website there. Scroll down to the August 20 issue. We're talking about the EPA here, the Environmental Protection Agency. And the idea that science plays a role in policy making at the EPA has just taken a turn for the worst. The EPA announced at the end of September of 2018 that it plans on dissolving entirely its Office of the Science Advisor. The job of the Office of the Science Advisor is to counsel the administrators of the EPA about the science behind the health and environmental regulations that the EPA is considering at that time. 
The science advisor is supposed to be making sure that there's high quality scientific research behind the decisions that the EPA is making. The current acting administrator of the EPA is Andrew Wheeler. Andrew Wheeler was a former lobbyist for the coal industry, and he took over the EPA after the beleaguered Scott Pruitt left. This is after months of Scott Pruitt being accused of act after act of corruption and malfeasance. As soon as Mr. Wheeler took over the EPA, he said he wanted to reorganize that agency. Well, getting rid of the science advisor certainly is um, reorganization. No one knows what's going to become of the EPA's current science advisor. The plan is to merge the science advisor's office into an office that reports to the deputy assistant administrator for science. This will put two layers of managerial control between the EPA's chief scientist and the top decision maker, rather than the direct contact that they currently have. A representative of the Union of Concerned Scientists, which is a nonprofit science advocacy organization, says, quote, It's certainly a pretty big demotion, a pretty big bearing of this office. Everything from research on chemicals and health to peer review testing to data analysis would inevitably suffer, unquote. Now, this is on top of some other bad decisions that the EPA has been making lately. Under Scott Pruitt, the EPA has decided to severely limit the type of research that would be considered in its decision-making process. The EPA now is only allowed to consider research studies where the underlying data is made publicly available. So what they're claiming is that they're shooting for transparency, but critics think that this is a way of blocking access to important information about the harmful effects of pollution because clinical research involving human subjects typically have to guarantee patient confidentiality, but the EPA is now saying, no, we want to know about these different patients before we'll even look at the data. If this rule had been in effect in the past, the EPA probably wouldn't have been able to look at data that was linking exposure to leaded gasoline and neurological damage, or a 1993 study showing a link between fine particle air pollution and premature deaths. The bottom line is that researchers will probably have trouble recruiting human volunteers for new studies if they can't pledge that their personal information will remain confidential. Another example of the EPA's attack on science has to do with how they've changed the guidelines about who could serve on its scientific panels. Now, if a scientist is receiving grant money from the EPA for doing research, they're not allowed to serve on an EPA science advisory panel. Now, the EPA has about two dozen of these science panels, and the net effect of this ruling is that There's going to be a lot more scientists who are working in the private sector who are going to serve on these panels, and there's going to be fewer scientists from academia. My personal opinion is that this is going to prejudice these scientific panels who are supposed to be nonpartisan and unbiased. On top of dissolving the independent office of the science advisor in September, the EPA has also recently got rid of the head of the Office of Children's Health. That person is Dr. Ruth Etzel. And she has been bumping heads with the White House about various issues. Well, she was recently asked to hand over her building badge, her keys, and her cell phone. 
The EPA says that it was not a disciplinary action, but then they don't say much else about it, and they don't explain why they're doing this. This Office of Children's Health was founded during the Clinton administration as a way of informing the EPA leadership about the specific health and environmental protection needs of children. The thing about children is that they have lower body weight, they spend more time outdoors, and they're still growing really fast. So it's believed that they're more susceptible to pollution than adults are. The issue is that most scientific studies about the effect of pollution on our bodies is with adults. And so there's this special situation of how does pollution affect children, even though most of your data is about adults. That's what the Office of Children's Health was supposed to be dealing with. So targeting Dr. Etzel, who's head of the Office of Children's Health, is raising a lot of concern. And the staff at the Office of Children's Health have already been worried about the Trump administration's efforts to weaken a recent proposal to reduce childhood exposure to lead. They've also been weakening rules that bar farm workers under the age of 18 from applying toxic pesticides to fruits and vegetables. So the demotion of science by the Trump administration appears to be continuing. We'll try to keep you updated on future developments about this. I was reading an interesting article in the journal Physics Today on a topic of geothermal energy production. Geothermal energy production usually conjures up images of what the industry refers to as dry steam energy production. In this application, steam is captured from underground, where it can be piped to a generator, turning turbine blades attached to coils of wire. The turbine blades, hit by steam, rotate the coils of wire in magnetic fields to induce electrical current. The current induced in the coils can then be used to send electricity out to a community. The drawback to such a system is that one must build such a facility near a source of steam, and those are not all that common. In the U.S., for example, there are two locations. One of these is on a national park, Yellowstone National Park in Wyoming, which is protected from development and should be. The other is in Northern California and is capable of being developed, but this does restrict dry steam energy production to one location in the U.S. There are other types of geothermal power and energy production, but this article offers an interesting twist. According to the scientists interviewed for the article, they want to pursue what they term Engineered Geothermal Systems, or EGS for short. In this type of system, cold water can be injected into rocks to open existing fractures or create new ones. Heat is extracted from hot rocks using this water, which can be returned to the surface to be used to make steam for electricity production or the hot water can possibly be used for heating buildings directly. Once the heat has been liberated for energy production, the now cooled water can be repurposed to inject back into the rocks to start all over. A model for such a system that most people would be familiar with would be the radiator in a car. Radiator fluid is pumped through a running engine and captures heat from that engine. A radiator is used to extract heat from that fluid transferring the heat to the air blown through the radiator by a fan. This allows the fluid to be cooled, where it can then be pumped back into the engine and the process repeats. 
In the case of an EGS, one must drill deep to get to the hot interior of the earth, much deeper than current gas or oil wells. This allows the water to pass through hot rocks, extracting the heat from those rocks, just like a radiator fluid captures heat from the engine block. That heated water can then be moved through coils that are intertwined around pipes with water passing through them, and this secondary water supply gets converted to steam, which can be sent off to the generator. Just as the radiator fluid never comes in direct contact with the air used to carry the heat away, the water brought up from the deep well does not come in direct contact with the secondary water that is used to make steam to be sent to the generator. It is simply cooled in the exchange of heat, and once cooled, it can be returned to the interior of the earth to be heated again, repeating the process. These scientists further claim that unlike the limits placed on dry steam energy production, this type of system could be set up just about anywhere, assuming the underlying rock can be found that is porous enough or can be fractured enough to allow water to pass through it to extract the vast reservoir of heat well below the Earth's surface. In addition to the technological struggles of digging deep wells and finding just the right rock structure, there are social considerations to be accounted for as well. This process is akin to fracking, the process used by petroleum and natural gas companies to liberate more of the product that they seek. Such processes have been tied to increased local seismic activity. But there are two differences between fracking and an EGS. One difference is that fracturing would be much deeper than in typical gas and petroleum wells, which would reduce the chance of increased local seismic activity. The second difference is the recycling of water. Fracking done today involves injecting more liquid in than is removed, which can enhance seismic risk. An EGS recycles the same water, so the chances of enhanced seismic activity are smaller. At present, experimental stations are all that exist. These have been set up in different parts of the world. These test beds will be used to work through the technical aspects of this process. It is also possible that the results from these test beds can be used to provide information about the things that touch on the social acceptance side of this issue. Can, for example, such systems increase the chances of seismic activity locally? This has been the implication of fracking by petroleum and natural gas industries, and in one or two cases of EGS test beds in other locations of the world, this may also have been the case. Though more study is needed in those instances before anything definitive can be said about the actual cause of the seismic activity. Why is this research important? More and more we hear of a need to embrace alternatives to traditional energy generation processes. Coal, oil, natural gas all contribute gases, primarily carbon dioxide, to our atmosphere. Carbon dioxide is a known greenhouse gas, and the additional carbon dioxide placed in our atmosphere has coincided with an increase in global temperatures. Most scientists see a link between the two, a broad consensus among those who study this process. What this means is that alternatives must be found to satisfy our ever-growing need for energy. Wind power and solar power are two sources that have been widely touted in the media and used as talking points in political discussions. 
nuclear fission, while not adding to greenhouse gases, like the burning of fossil fuels, comes with its own shortcomings, specifically the stable storage of the byproducts of the fission reactors. Nuclear fusion, a much more promising use of nuclear energy, still seems to be the holy grail of energy production, captivating but elusive. So it is necessary to explore additional sources of energy, like EGS, to move us to energy independence and reduction of human-induced climate change via fossil fuel use. I wanted to talk about the world's oceans for a bit. As you know, climate change is having a big impact on all of the ecosystems of the world, but the world's marine environments are especially susceptible to climate change. Of course, when people talk about climate change, they're referring to the alterations in global climate patterns or regional climate patterns seen in the last 50 years that are attributable to increased levels of atmospheric carbon dioxide. And of course, CO2 carbon dioxide gets produced and put into the atmosphere whenever fossil fuels are burned, like coal, petroleum, methane, but also when wood is burned, decomposition of organic matter, like when forests decay, etc., etc. And as you already know, this extra CO2 that's being put into the atmosphere traps solar energy and causes the air, the water, and the land to all warm up. And you've probably already also heard about how climate change is hurting the marine environments of the world. So it hurts the oceans by causing sea levels to rise, by increasing the intensity of storms like hurricanes, by damaging coral reefs, by altering fish migration patterns, by acidifying the water, and also by the deoxygenation of the water so that fish don't have as much oxygen to breathe. These are all problems that are being made worse because of climate change. But here's a question for you. How about those parts of the ocean that are currently being protected? What about those parts of the ocean where overfishing is prevented? Where animals like polar bears and penguins are being protected? Where coral reefs are being prevented from being damaged? Where mineral and oil extraction is not allowed? Do these protections reduce the effect of climate change? What do you think? Well, wouldn't you know it, I have some research on that. There's some researchers centered at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, but it also involved other campuses around the world. These researchers looked into this question and published a paper in the journal called Nature Climate Change in June of 2018. In the literature review part of their paper, these researchers admit that the answer is sort of already known. And the answer is no. Marine areas that are already protected are not immune to climate change. The Great Barrier Reef in Australia, for instance, that's been protected for many years now, but it's experienced a whole lot of coral die-off due to climate change. These researchers wanted to move beyond anecdotal evidence and investigate this question in more detail. These researchers focused on two big ways that climate change affects marine environments. One, rising water temperature, and two, changing oxygen levels in ocean water. And it's believed that our oceans are absorbing about 90% of the excess heat trapped by greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide and methane. 
This increase in ocean temperature is seen even at the very deepest parts of the ocean. The other factor they looked at, deoxygenation of the water, is a bit more complicated. It turns out when the surface of a body of water heats up, it doesn't absorb as much oxygen from the atmosphere. So the surface of a water is sort of resistant to taking up oxygen when it's heated up. And then whatever oxygen the water does absorb, it doesn't travel down to the lower depths of the ocean as much because warm water expands, which makes the water less dense. And water that's less dense is not going to sink down to the lower depths of the ocean as much. So the researchers looked at how climate change affects water in two different ways. It makes the water warmer, but it makes the water hold less oxygen. This deoxygenation of the water is not equal throughout the globe. These same researchers published a paper back in 2016 where they reported that deoxygenation has already occurred in the southern part of the Indian Ocean and then parts of the eastern tropical Pacific and Atlantic basins. But then other parts of the world aren't as affected by deoxygenation like the east coast of Africa and Australia and around Southeast Asia the deoxygenation of the ocean water is less severe. So the effect of climate change on ocean deoxygenation is different in various parts of the globe. What's so bad about ocean deoxygenation? Well, deoxygenation is bad for several reasons. First of all, it causes a decline in the population of plankton in the ocean. And plankton is what many animals depend on for food. Secondly, deoxygenation changes the chemistry of the ocean water. And then thirdly, it means that the fish and other animals that live in the ocean have less oxygen to actually consume. Well, to get back to this question of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, known as IPCC, published their latest predictions about changes in global CO2 levels back in 2014. The IPCC is very well respected. It's an international panel of climate experts that the United Nations organized starting back in 1988. Remember back in 2007 when the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, won the Nobel Peace Prize? They shared it with Vice President Al Gore. So they're really the world's premier climate change experts. One of the important jobs of the IPCC is to predict what's going to happen to global CO2 levels in the future. And their last prediction was done back in 2014. And what they included in their report were four different possible trajectories for how the concentration of greenhouse gases might increase during the rest of this century, meaning until the year 2100. So they come up with these different trajectories because there's so many variables that could change in the future that might affect our future levels of CO2 in the atmosphere. What's the population growth going to be like in the future? What's the world gross domestic product going to be in the future? How much air pollution will there be? How is land going to be used? How much energy is going to be consumed by the world in that period? And then what is the source of that energy? Those things could all change. So, of course, some of the trajectories for CO2 levels in the future are fairly pessimistic, meaning they're going to go, CO2 levels are going to get really high. And then some of them are more optimistic, meaning CO2 levels would be lower. 
the most optimistic model they've developed has greenhouse gases peaking in 2040 and then starting to decline. Their most pessimistic trajectory has greenhouse gases increasing steadily from now until the end of the century. This more pessimistic model is sometimes called the business-as-usual model. The business-as-usual model is the trajectory that we're currently on. And then between these two extreme trajectories, there's two other trajectories that are more intermediate in their prediction of CO2 levels increasing by 2100. The authors of the study I'm discussing today choose two different trajectories to focus on. There's the business-as-usual trajectory, which was the most pessimistic model from IPCC, and then the second most optimistic model is what they worked on. And in that model, greenhouse gases increase until the year 2070 and then plateau off. They examined 8,236 of the world's marine protected areas, MPAs, these MPAs cover about 4% of the planet's oceans. And then they developed models to predict what would happen to ocean temperature and oxygen levels in these MPAs by the year 2100 under these two scenarios that are predicted by these trajectories. In the business-as-usual model, which was the more pessimistic one, they predicted that sea surface temperature would increase 2.8 degrees centigrade by 2100. That's about 5 degrees Fahrenheit increase in the ocean temperature by the year 2100. For the more optimistic trajectory, they predicted water temperature would rise about half of that, about 2.5 degrees Fahrenheit. Both of these outcomes are bad. The authors predict that this much warming under either one of these models would devastate the species and the whole ecosystems of many of these marine protected areas. This warming of the water seems to occur most dramatically in regions further from the equator, like the polar regions, the Arctic and the Antarctic, and in the temperate zones, like the Northwest Atlantic Ocean. It doesn't look like the ocean surface temperatures are increasing as much in the tropical and subtropical regions, the parts of the ocean near the equator. It looks different for deoxygenation levels, however. There's quite a bit of loss of oxygen in the ocean near the equator. So this is very concerning. The authors predict that it will be around the year 2050 when we reach emergence. And emergence is the year that sea surface temperatures and oxygen concentrations exceed natural variability. So our oceans will be in an unnatural state in about 30 years unless things change. Dr. John Bruno, who is lead author of this paper, is quoted as saying, With warming of this magnitude, we expect to lose many, if not most, animal species from marine protected areas by the turn of the century. To avoid the worst outcomes, he says, we need to immediately adopt an emission reduction scenario in which emissions peak within the next two decades and then decrease very significantly, replacing fossil fuels with cleaner energy sources like solar and wind, end of quote. While we're waiting for all these alternative energy sources, however, we as individuals, and that includes companies and workplaces, institutions, we could do our own part in reducing the amount of CO2 that's put into the air. We can adjust our thermostats. We can turn off lights that we don't need. We can turn off computers when we're not using them. 
We could drive smaller cars. We could idle those cars less when we're not driving. We could recycle more, etc. Instead of playing the blame game, I think we could all examine our own behaviors. Well, thanks a lot for listening to this week's episode of Bench Talk, The Week in Science. I mentioned at the beginning of the show that we are starting our first ever pledge drive for the radio station next week. In honor of this occasion, I have written a very special poem. Here it is. Alternative Radio, we so need you now to inform us, inspire, and make us smile. We've got local programs galore about schools, single-payer, and critical thinking. We've got shows on sustainability and the media, on race, on peace, on urban voices, why we are an oral encyclopedia. So make you some choices. Listen to Ralph Nader, Amy Goodman, or Liz Show. Donate to Ford Radio and watch us grow. <laughs> well, thanks, and see you during our pledge drive next week. As always, thanks for listening to Bench Talk, the week in science. We think the world is a fascinating place, and science is a good way to explore it. Thank you.